G'day, this is The Age Stage, a program that looks at issues and matters affecting older Australians, made possible by Aftercare Australasia and our friends at Australian Unity. Welcome everyone, I'm Brendan Telfer. This week on The Age Stage, the extraordinary story of a former federal MP, Max Burr, his light-filled bucket and his belief that the device is improving his Parkinson's disease. If using infrared light can protect neuron cells in a mouse's brain, why can't they protect the, the neuron cells in my brain? I'd regain the sense of smell, the fine motor movements. I was able to play the piano again. All of those symptoms had improved. Max Burr and his role in a proof-of-concept clinical trial and the role that infrared light might be having in the treatment and control of Parkinson's. That's a little bit later on in this week's edition of The Age Stage. But first up, Ron Haynes from Aftercare Australasia, as he does every other week, has slipped into the Bendigo Bank studio. Ron, we haven't seen you for a week or so. Um, as you do, when you do drop by, you bring us up to speed on the Royal Commission currently underway. Revelations have been interesting and a little bit confronting. Mm. Brendan, there's been a whole lot of quite concerning bits of information that have come out of this second round of hearings. Um, one of the things that really stood out was this uh, remarkably high level of assaults that are going on uh, in the nursing home sector. Um, and so specifically we're talking about what they call reportable assaults. So these are assaults that involve um, residents with staff members only, so not issues between the residents themselves. And the figures for the last financial year are saying that it's 3,773 reportable assaults. Uh, now, this is just ex extraordinary that this is going on. And who's doing the reporting, Warren? I mean, are these, are these um, nursing homes reporting themselves and are these reliable figures? Mm, well, unfortunately, uh, I have to say, yes, it's, it's self-reports. You, you may recall that I uh, outlined uh, some time back that we all received a, uh, a survey uh, which specifically asked about uh, reportable assaults. And I, I, my impression is that this is the first time that they've even really had a serious attempt to review the figures and try and update them, but it's still completely dependent on the approved providers themselves disclosing how many of these sorts of uh, assaults have, have occurred in their facilities. And obviously you know, the thing people need to remember is they're businesses. You've got a, you've got a vested self-interest in under-reporting because it's very bad for your brand, especially if you're a large, uh, you know, a large organisation that has, if you like, really high, a really high brand profile where, you know, the reporting's about one facility may, in people's minds, be, become equivalent to you know the hundred other facilities that you've got across the the nation which aren't having any issues at all so they're very um, reluctant in my opinion to to accurately report this well indeed as a collective you know the nursing homes collective would surely be trying to present a, a lovely and squeaky clean business model but this is sort of making a bit of a mockery of that then mm. this number of assaults mm. carers on patients Mm, staggering mm, figures mm, really mm. isn't it yes it is it's, it's shocking because clearly uh, there, there needs to be a whole lot of safeguards being put in to make sure that these sorts of things don't happen and and the figures suggest that those safeguards are not being 
uh, you know, done at a level that's ensuring the safety. Well, that's up into this time, and I guess that's what the Royal Commission is all about. <laughs> they uh, flush it out and they make some recommendations. But again, as we've heard you say in the past, the Royal Commission is probably not going to be delivering any conclusions for some time yet. Mm-hmm, that's right. Uh, there are things, though, that are happening. I mean, obviously, as is often the case with the uh, you know, Royal Commission sort of shining the spotlight onto issues, uh, there has there was also a very interesting comment um, from the uh, Department of Health Secretary who uh, noted that the uh, number of serious risk findings made by the aged care regulator uh, has jumped from uh, two years ago. It, there were two serious findings. Um, the most recent year there were 61. And uh, so I think it is having an effect. But, of course, then you have to wonder, well... Uh, once the Royal Commission winds up, does everything just go back to back to normal, if you like, um, and go back to the way things were? But you would think that there's going to be some sort of infrastructure left behind after the Royal Commission or recommendation would be some sort of infrastructure that would be able to regulate and observe and uh, sanction this sort of behaviour in the sector, surely? Hmm. Look, Brendan, I agree. That's what, that's what should happen. And I think we'll just have to watch and see what unfolds. But again, we're at the risk of sounding like a terrible cynic. Um, I think uh, quite some time ago I mentioned that there's already been 12 inquiries into these issues within aged care, not Royal Commissions admittedly, but 12 inquiries over about the last 10 years which have resulted in very, very, very little change. So um, that, that's a lot of the reason that we're in this, you know, seemingly in a crisis uh, within the industry. Just for the sake of editorial balance here, I mean, mm-hmm. your business model, of course, advocates that basically it's in-home care that mm-hmm. uh, you address. Um, so perhaps those that uh, do provide uh, the nursing home uh, or aged care facility would be suggesting that you might have a vested interest and you would be finding against them? Mm. Look, I think that that's a, probably a reasonable assumption for them to have. Um, but but it's also about uh, the fact that I'm in that side of the industry is because I've seen how the other parts of the industry operate and uh, I'm just not comfortable in that space because if, if you're really serious about providing people with uh, proper support... Um, these sort of corporate models that I've uh, saying are sort of progressively creeping into nursing home care, in my view, are a lot of what drives um, these sorts of issues that they're seeing now. But those sorts of corporate models are surely being introduced to try and keep a a tap on on costs, um, the the cost of providing that sort of care. The business model is being really examined very healthily here, I would suggest. Yeah. It's being squeezed, Mm. and they've got to try and come up with some means of making, I guess, some sort of profit out of this business model, which is looking after older Australians. But on the way, it's their duty of care within that. How do you enshrine that duty of care? Yeah, and look, I, I think this this sort of does point to the need for um, um, a greater level of there being well established standards of care that are quite measurable, and that that uh, both families and regulators can come in and, and clearly see whether or not um, service providers are actually meeting those. Whereas up until now, it's largely been self regulated, and I, I think I've again I've commented previously on the difference that I see between how how very specific some of the standards are within disability care versus aged care where they're, they're almost sort of like motherhood statements in terms of 
or aspirational statements perhaps would be a better way to put it around uh, you know what sort of supports they're looking for. So what is this saying about the workforce and the people that are being employed in this sector? Is it uh, resonating with you? Well look again what's tending to happen is it's a bit of a race to the bottom uh, where uh, their providers are often looking at trying to reduce the number of more expensive staff such as nurses and I know the Nursing Federation uh, has had a lot to say on on that, how there's been a almost a mass exodus of uh, nursing staff from within uh, the aged care sector and in particular within nursing homes, um, and and a growing uh, reliance on putting respons- more and more responsibilities on the lowest paid staff, the um, PCAs as they're called, uh, to p- perform more and more um, nursing type duties and more and more responsibilities, uh, and often without adequate support systems in place. Um, so, you know, I, th- I think these are some of the changes in the industry that are co- creating a lot of the difficulties that we're now seeing. So where to from here? What are we up to as far as the Royal Commission is concerned? I see that you've got a very heavily, a big tome <laughs> over there, navigating, what is it called? Navigating change, is it? And navigating the maze, the maze is the, is the, the heading. Maze. Um, so this is a background paper that they produced in February. And uh, look, I, I haven't got time to go into it. It's uh, 51 pages. <laughs> um, but I think the, the, the key thing to come away from, uh, come away with, take away with from that is, is the fact that it is actually an incredibly complicated system possibly far more complicated than it needs to be and that's one of the other things that makes it difficult to oversight and and regulate Uh, and it makes it difficult for families to work out what's the best option for them to take. Um, We uh, often find that I'm having to advise people who uh, might be say for argument's sake on a level three package which is a sub- substantial amount of support for someone living at home um, but if they what I'm telling families is yes but if you need um, significant ongoing nursing care as opposed to personal care uh, that has to be provided by a registered nurse and the costs of that are prohibitive uh, and so you can look at your your funding and go, oh well, this is terrific. I've got you know hundreds and hundreds of dollars a week to spend on services, and then you find out that in home nursing might be costing eighty, seventy five, eighty dollars an hour, or oh, sorry, a half hour, a half hour, um, and you need visits, half hour visits, seven days a week. Uh, well, all of a sudden, you know, most of that that buying power from that package has just evaporated into thin air. Medical costs, eh? Costing an absolute fortune these days. Mm. Well, and it's it's to do with whether it's subsidised or not. So if you're on a lower level of package or you're um, receiving services from council in the sort of more traditional way of getting that in-home support, those costs are heavily subsidised and you might be paying something in the order of $10 a visit. Um, but as soon as you go onto a higher level package, um, there's a bit of sort of you know cost shifting, I guess, that goes on with within the department, uh, where all of a sudden those subsidies are removed, and you're paying the actual full cost of those um, that that nursing care. Uh, it's nothing that the nurses themselves or the companies that provide that can do much about. Um, it's just the way that the funding works. But it's a str- sometimes it can create these quite strange sort of inequities. Um, we've got a we've got a lady that we're working with at the moment who we were quite lucky that we were able to um, establish that um, the sort of 
assistance that she needed was right down the lower end of what she'd regard as being nursing care and it was able to be managed through a combination of having some personal carers coming in and and taking over what the nurses were doing and then a bit of monitoring of her health needs from from a, a, a practice nurse at the local GP's clinic that she can now go to once a week and get that done. Sure, well, that's a happy resolution for yeah. her. It's a, it's, a, it's a way forward. But I guess the conclusion at this stage of the Royal Commission is that they're finding out that there needs to be some sort of better administration in terms of regulation of the workforce and workforce practices within this sector. Mm. And the other one, I think crucially, probably by the sounds of it, is it's going to come down to the almighty dollar and how much <laughs> the government is going to have to invest in this sector because we're getting older. Mm. There's a, there's an enormous uh, unmet gap, and that's one of the other things that was touched on in the Commission. Uh, you know, they, I think the, the headline is, you know, there's a billion-dollar crisis, and uh, what they're saying is that uh, with this sort of baby boomer generation coming through now, the demand for aged care is only going to increase, and in fact increase exponentially. And uh, there's already um, a shortfall of people that are waiting, for example, for home care packages. Um, so they're to, just to bring down the current waiting list to three months as opposed to where it's at now, which is 12 months, uh, they're saying that would cost billions of dollars to fund an additional 30,000 high-level packages. 30,000? 30,000. Um, that's the gap that's there at the moment. Well, we're speaking to Warren Haynes of Aftercare Australasia. Warren, we're going to take a bit of a break, have a listen to our wonderful sponsors. You, of course, are one of them, and <laughs> we must uh, establish that fact here at RPPFM on the aid stage. We'll take a break. We'll be right back with more in just a moment. RPPFM across the Mornington Peninsula on 98.7 and 98.3. Great to have you company this Thursday morning. Brendan Telfer in the hot seat. This is the aid stage, a program that we've devised that looks at matters affecting older Australians, made possible by our very good friends at Australian Unity and, of course, Aftercare Australasia. Speaking of Aftercare Australasia, Warren Haynes is here from that company. Before the break, we were talking to Warren about his observations and conclusions so far in this uh, fast-evolving Royal Commission, which is looking at the sector. A couple of other things I just wanted to bring up, uh, Warren, uh, Mm. as we come back from the break. Um, That was chemical restraint and dementia. Um, We're talking about dementia and Parkinson's disease, as we heard earlier on in the program, in a a moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But but obviously, again, hugely impactful. Uh, The chemical restraints as well. I mean, we're talking about workforce before and uh, physical abuse, Mm. but this is borderline physical and and mental abuse as well, isn't it? Chemical restraint? Well, so again, just to to recap what chemical restraint is, it's essentially taking medication for the primary purpose of controlling your behavior so often uh, what that results in is the you know that sort of almost uh, one flew over the cuckoo's nest um, appearance of things where people are sedated to a point where they're not really participating in life anymore um, and you know in its worst case you then get a whole lot of really serious side effects but who is making these determinations about the, the the chemical intervention i mean where is the responsibility residing in all that well it's 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 very, it seems to be very unclear and that's that's one of the issues so um I, I just to sort of give some context here and this is kind of me you know <laughs> using my nursing background yeah. um 
people often assume that there's um, really widespread knowledge and understanding of how medications are used across the population, and it's not the case. Most research and studies into approval of medications is based on uh, using those medications with white, male, um, young to middle-aged um, individuals. So there's often very little evidence-based uh, research around how those medications might work with either the very, very young or with our elderly people. Um, and it's, it, as with most things, uh, you know, with ageing, your, your metabolism changes, your ability to process drugs definitely changes, and therefore the way that they affect you changes. And so often what's happening is that um, even when there are good clinicians involved, uh, they don't have a lot of evidence. It's a lot of trial and error and sort of figuring out how it's going to work on the individual as you go, often at the expense of the individual's quality of life. Um, but there's also, uh, this is why it's, it's worthwhile sort of linking dementia with the overuse of chemical restraint or medication, um, is that often there's a lack of expertise within the staff who are providing the support for people with dementia who, as we, as we know, may display um, behaviours that are a bit disconcerting or a bit antisocial at times or a bit, bit unusual. Uh, and rather than those behaviours being well managed by um, the way in which the staff support the, the, the resident, uh, what happens is they, they rapidly sort of run out of ideas and turn to the doctors who, who then sort of feel as though they have no choice but to start prescribing medication to control the person's behaviour. There's really good evidence, Brendan, and we, we've learnt this from our own experience, that, that medication is very limited in how it can genuinely improve people's behaviour. There are some very specific um, dementia-focused um, medications that will improve people's, pe people's memory and their concentration and their, their sort of ability to retain their faculties. But outside of that, really the most effective way of supporting people with dementia is by understanding their behaviour and how it affects them as an individual. Well, earlier on in the year, of course, we were running a couple of specials here on, on the age stage in which we looked at those different types of interventions as far as um, dementia was concerned and uh, the rugby team in the north of England that was encouraging uh, guys with advanced dementia and at quite young age to get involved in rugby. Mm. And the stuff that the Dutch are doing as well is quite amazing in terms of giving them power and empowerment. Um, but I guess then, you know, you advocate, of course, the home care package. Mm. And I guess in that circumstance, your intervention would not be advocating a chemical intervention, but it would rather be management, would it not? If a person is going to be staying in their own home in their own environment, you'd want them to be enjoying as best as they could their own faculties to do that, surely. Yes. And look, I, I think, you know, there are a, a lot of just natural advantages in providing that sort of support in the person's home. Because obviously, Brennan, they're, they're completely orientated to uh, where everything is in their home. They feel secure in their own so, home. So the mood swings, the anxieties and stuff are probably going to be able to be more controllable, surely, in that emotional environment rather than in a, in a foreign place where, where, they've, been, mm. uh, where Pure, they've been put. You're quite right. Purely because it's predictable 
and it's and it's well known and they're they're very familiar with everything. So, you know, they're not getting people aren't getting distressed if they're trying to find the bathroom because they know where the bathroom is, it's the same place it's been for the last twenty years. Um, and, and, and what that means too is that they can people can often rely on their longer term memory, which is, as we know, is the the thing that they retain for the longest as the dementia progresses. Um, it's that ability to learn new things and new information that, that's impacted first with dementia. So people are often living quite comfortable, um, satisfactory lives, you know, quite, quite enjoyable lives, just getting about and doing things that they've done for a very, very, very long time with just a little bit of extra support. But there is surely in some instances going to be a tipping point where somebody cannot care for themselves in that environment. Or are you advocating that they can go all the way through the entire dementia experience? It's, it's certainly quite possible for, for people to stay living at home for far, far longer than the broader community would assume and still be quite safe and quite happy. It, it, it does depend on the individual circumstances. And again, that basically reinforces what uh, we were hearing from the Dutch and that special that we heard uh, courtesy of the, uh, the BBC recently, that they also advocate this, this notion that people should be empowered and that they do have the capacity to look after themselves in those, those sorts of environments. Now, the, again, getting back to the Royal Commission, I mean, essentially the government position is it's encouraging people to stay within their own homes longer. And, and surely this is going to be another finding that we're going to be discovering from the Royal Commission eventually. Surely it's going to be one of the recommendations that this is the model going forward. Is it, is, am I right? Well, again, I think it remains to be seen. Mm. Traditionally, because of... Yeah, so again, this is just my personal opinion, Brendan, yeah. but uh, from what I've seen, uh, there's just such an enormous investment by uh, companies into infrastructure around building nursing homes um, they have formed very, very effective lobby groups and for many, many, many years now, um, rather than the majority of funding being provided towards or directed towards home care packages, which is clearly where the customer demand is and, and is not being met, um, the, the figures traditionally have had substantial, in fact, the majority of funding still going towards nursing homes, even though... That's not where the demand is. It's not that there's no demand, but there's there's quite substantial vacancies in the in many areas of the nursing home system. Whereas, as we were just saying before, there's enormous waiting lists for people looking for a home care package. So, how are we addressing the waiting list here for home care packages? Are we addressing it? Are you satisfied with what's going on at the moment? There's been two very recent rounds of um, new funding uh, announced, but that's essentially what it's dependent on. It's dependent on uh, the government of the day deciding that they're going to spend extra money. There is no entitlement as such for older people to expect that when they get to a certain stage in their life where they need support to remain living at home, that it will automatically be available for them, in particular available at the level that they require it. So there are often people who are being offered level two packages when in fact they've been assessed as needing a level four package, Brendan. Uh, and this is where the gaps in the current funding show up. So people, just to put that into dollar figures, that means that a person who's been assessed as needing uh, over $50,000 a year of support, uh, funding, sorry, for support, is receiving 15000 So uh, the figures speak for themselves. But at the same time, 
money is continuously and being invested into nursing home beds instead. So here I am. Uh, I'm, I'm an independent thinker. I do have some problems. I do need some care. I do need some intervention. But I do want to stay at home. Um, I don't have support of family. I'm isolated. I have to make some decisions. I want to stay at home. I don't have much money. Can I stay at home? I would say it would depend on the level of support that you require. I need level four or level three support. Mm. Can, can I still stay at home? I no, want to stay at home. Not under the current system. So somebody's no. going to come bundle me up and take me into a, some sort of a, an aged care facility? Usually what would happen is that you would stay at home and struggle on until some sort of crisis occurred. And when the crisis occurred, you would end up being told that your only option would be to go into a nursing home. And that's not going to be great for my state of mind. Well, no. Um, so what happens then is is often people get cut off from what natural supports they've got. So just to sort of you know look at that from the other side, we've got a lady that we're supporting um, who uh, has so she lives by herself. Uh, her family, her family are very supportive, might I add, but her family live on the other side of Melbourne, and uh, because she's been able to get a home care package. Um, she gets just this little bit of support that she needs to get going each day and make sure that she's taken her medication and just that the household's ticking over nicely. But in fact, even though she's got dementia, again, and there's that dementia uh, coming up, she's got really good uh, supports within the broader community. So she has a local cafe who know her really well. She goes there for lunch uh, five days a week. Um, they know what meals she likes. They greet her like an old friend because she's been going there for many, many years. She's a good customer. Um, and then after she goes there, she finds her way down to uh, the local RSL in this case, where, again, she's been a member there for the last uh, 10 years. They know her really well. They know what she likes to do. They'll organise a cup of coffee for her and just give her that little bit of support, not a lot, a little bit, and she's still able to be quite independent with lots of things. She's got her own money. She manages that well. And then she'll pick up some something for tea on the way home and pop home, and, and when she gets home, there's another worker there to make sure that all of that sorted out for her so she just gets that little bit of support but she's still living fairly independently but within a supportive community now there are literally tens of thousands of people like that brendan across the whole of australia who may not have lots and lots and lots of um, formal supports or uh, family who are sort of you know in there in the thick of it providing that that ongoing support but they but they are members of a community and with with a home care package they can continue to to have that participation in their community and get support informally that way and have a terrific quality of life you know, really that's where I think the focus needs to be. So leaving aside, you know, whether we think nursing homes are good or bad or indifferent, they've definitely got their place um, and they definitely can deliver a good quality of service um, with the right structures in place. But, but really what most people want is they want to stay at home and if, they're, if they've got those informal supports around them with a little bit of extra help from a home care package, they can, they can do that for way longer than they think they need to um, or that the community assumes they, 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 you know, they need to and live a great quality of life and be relatively safe with some risks. But they're the risks that we all take every day. Any of us can 
step outside the door today and get hit by a bus. Um, but we don't lie in bed, you know, fretting about that. We go, but that's my life and I want to lead it and that's what I choose to do. So why should that be any different for our older um, citizens? And even if they've got dementia or some other health conditions, they've got every right to choose the lifestyle that they want to lead and all they need is a bit of support to do it. Warren Haynes, thank you very much indeed. Been most interesting. A great session again, Warren. Thank you very much indeed from Aftercare Australasia. And uh, Warren uh, is a uh, sometime visitor here at the radio station. Every other week he drops by, brings us up to speed on the Royal Commission at a very interesting stage, as we heard, and also, of course, is a powerful advocate of home care because that is what Aftercare Australasia does. Warren, thank you very much indeed for your time. My pleasure, Brandon. Warren Haynes of Aftercare Australasia, who joins us every alternate week here on the Age Stage. And it must also be noted that as the Royal Commission into Age Care moves into its next phase, the Age newspaper has been looking at the home care sector. But the report is pretty damning. Uh, according to the Age, there's untrained and unfamiliar staff, there are high costs in the sector, poor transparency and confusion. The dream of ageing at home, it says is for some turning into a nightmare. Well, we will examine those claims next time we meet, Warren, on the Age Stage in a couple of weeks' time. But stick around with the Age Stage, because when we come back, we meet Max Burr, who is pioneering infrared light as a means of combating Parkinson's disease. Well, next on to Max Burr, who every day this ex-parliamentarian puts a light-filled bucket on his head. Yes, it looks particularly weird, but this peculiar arrangement is no ordinary matter. In fact, the bucket is used because it's cheap and because it's convenient, but it is the lights inside it that are special. The concept is known as photobiomodulation. Experiments on mice have shown that photobiomodulation with infrared light improves brain cell neural connectivity. And the logic being that if it works on mice, might it not work on humans? And it also is thought that it might have some massive implications for people with things like Parkinson's disease. Max Burr shared his story with the ABC recently. So the thought then went through my mind, if using infrared light can protect neuron cells in a mouse's brain, why can't they protect the, the neuron cells in my brain? So I then sent an email to Professor Mitropanis and said oh, I wouldn't mind having a go at it. So he said, look, under no circumstances could he recommend uh, me using the, the lights that he'd been using because the lights had not been trialled at any stage on the human brain and he anticipated that it would be another 10 years before human clinical trials could be conducted. And I thought, well, in 10 years' time I could be dead. So I said, well, thank you very much for your advice, but I'm going to have a go at it anyway. We experimented using a workman's hard hat. We used a bike helmet. We trialled using a lampshade. We used the old dryers that the, the hairdressers used to have. Uh, but eventually we got around to using the bucket. We, we used the bucket because it was simply the, most, the easiest to work with. I'd regained the sense of smell, the fine motor movements. I was able to play the piano again. All of those symptoms had improved. The incredible claims of Max Burr and his conviction that infrared light or photobiomodulation will work on humans too. 
The claims have excited a number of people and now a number of clinical trials are underway in this country with research work being conducted in Tasmania. The University of Sydney is also conducting some clinical trials as well and also across the border at Parkinson's South Australia. And it is next to Adelaide that we go to meet Olivia Nassaris, who's Parkinson's South Australia's CEO. Olivia, great that you could join us on the H stage. Thank you very much indeed for taking a call. Your interest in photobiomodulation goes back some years and you know Max Burr don't you? Ah, that's my very good man, uh, friend, Max Burr, um, a former politician in Tasmania. Now, when he was diagnosed, um, um, like the curious chap that he is, he went and did his own research. He came across a paper by John Mitrofanis uh, from the University of Sydney um, that looked into light therapy, so photobiomodulation, fancy word for light therapy, um, but it was on animals. So he rang John and he asked him whether or not it would have the same influence on a human and John said that he couldn't give him any advice on that because obviously he'd only tested on animals. But Max went away and with a couple, like the help of a, a couple of his friends um, created you know, his first incarnation of the bucket, as he calls it, and, um, and, and thus started his, yeah, his treatment with light therapy. And, um, and from his anecdotal evidence, he has reported, you know, that he's improved and he's able to play lawn bowls again and he's able to play the piano and things that he couldn't previously do because of his Parkinson's symptoms. Well, it's an extraordinary story and the outcome, of course, is absolutely so encouraging for many people with Parkinson's. But what is the science involved here? You mentioned, of course, photobiomodulation, but what is the LED light actually doing inside the recesses of the brain that it can produce these sorts of results? Ah, now that's the $64 million question. Um, There's lots of different theories. Uh, There's a theory, you know, a lot of people don't believe that the light can necessarily pass through the skull, so they believe it's actually energy or... um, you know, that that passes through the skull that helps with some kind of neural protection. Um, and, um, And so that's basically what we're actually studying through the proof of concept trials that are going on um, in Queensland, Sydney and Adelaide. So indeed, so Parkinson's, where where does that fit in this sort of umbrella of, of these degenerative brain diseases? So it's uh, it's classed as a neurodegenerative disease or a movement disorder as well. Um, so it's the second largest movement disorder um, or neurodegenerative disease after um, Alzheimer's, and it's actually more prevalent than um, than a lot of the cancers. So um, has a, has quite a large prevalence and quite you know significant within our within our health system and with our aged care system. Um, so basically, Parkinson's is um, the death of your um, your dopamine cells, and so dopamine has a really, really enormous job <laughs> within your body. So it's responsible for movement. Um, it's responsible for um, how you learn and how you behave. But it also has a job of regulating mood and behaviour and sleep and cognition and uh, motivation and reward. So someone, by the time they're diagnosed with Parkinson's, has lost 80% of their dopamine. Wow. So that's a pretty fundamental uh, effect. Um, and so basically then the, the theory, as I understand it, is that this, this light 
energy passes through into the, the various cells, the cells that have been affected by uh, dying out and therefore cannot now uh, exude dopamine, uh, and, and they're, they're being repaired in some form or other. Is, is that how the science is working? That it's either it, there is either neuro, uh, neural protection for the actual the, the the 20 percent of dopamine cells that are there and that are still healthy, so helping them to remain healthy and and, and maintaining those cells, um, and then encouraging um, um, new neural pathways, um, and um, and so. So, for example, in the case of Max, who wasn't able to play the piano, just making sure that, you know, the, the dopamine cells that he has, um, you know, don't suffer any more cell death. So you then are now involved. University of Sydney, of course, got involved initially with Max, saw some encouraging results from extrapolated from their animal studies. So so where are we now? Are you part of a scientific assessment and research group that is looking into the impact yeah, of... Yeah, of... we are. We're one of the groups that's leading um, a, a proof-of-concept trial, which is just a, a smaller informed trial that will then, um, depending on the results, inform a larger clinical trial. Now, what happened was that um, Max featured in the Weekend Australian... Um, with a front cover with the bucket on his head and then, you know, um, and, a, and an extensive article inside. Now, clients in South Australia from the Parkinson's community obviously got really excited about this concept. Um, and in turn, a lot of people tried to contact everyone mentioned in the article. So rather than let that happen, um, I said to the membership, why don't you let me contact everyone in the article and see, you know, what kind of further investigation we have to do. So, And that led me to the academics at um, the University of Sydney and academics at Griffith University as well. And together we decided to put together a proof of concept trial so that we could actually have some informed science behind uh, photobiomodulation, which has existed for a very long time um, and used, um, you know, used for a lot of different things. But um, we thought that if we actually did a trial with three trial tri uh, sites um, to actually see whether or not um, we got some evidence behind it so that it wasn't just anecdotal evidence from people like Max and other people in Tasmania. So you mentioned, of course, photobiomodulation and has been used, as you say, in other medical areas in the past, like uh, repairing muscle tears and stuff like that. Where, where was it extrapolated from that to apply to regenerative uh, processes in the brain? I mean, who put those two together? the original academic was, but, you know, it's something that John Mitrofanis and Dan Johnson from the University of Sydney have been working on for quite some time. Um, and they say that, you know, that, that the... Um that the outcomes that they got, particularly uh, John speaks about um, a clinical trial with a monkey, and and he just said that that you know it like it changed it, it changed his opinion of it basically, that he saw um, such a turnaround um, with with this monkey that um, that he really did yeah have have this uh, belief in photobiomodulation and and the possibility that it could um, uh, improve so protect uh, it could encourage neural protection and then could also, you know, encourage new brain cells. Wow, it is a fantastic outcome. Um, so basically sort of proof now is what you're looking for. When do we get some clinical analysis and when do we get the definitive answer that it does have some sort of an impact and it can improve uh, life and uh, quality of life with Parkinson's? Yeah, so, I mean, um, we're halfway through our proof-of-concept trial at the moment, which means we've had a group 
go through their, their first lot of treatment. They'll have a break and the second group will trial as well. And so at the beginning, in the middle and the end of the trials, they're all being assessed by a neurologist um, from the Royal Adelaide as well. So, so we'll see some results probably at the end of, at the end of April, I, I think. I believe that some of those um, undertaking the courses are, are showing a placebo improvement as well. Placebo is, is extremely strong in Parkinson's in any area. So whether it be through, um, you know, through natural therapies or, or whether it actually be through medications and, and actually you know, taking placebo medications as well. But placebos will wear off. So the, the, the trial goes for, for such a long time that any placebo effect will see, a, you know, a wear, a wear off. Olivia, are you excited by all this? I am. I, I'm not so much excited about... I, I don't need to know about cells and neuron protection and all of those kind of things. I, I want to see, you know, the real outcomes on people's everyday life. And so how I see the trial is that if we can improve one of the non-motor symptoms of Parkinson's, such as mood or, you know, depression or anxiety, or, um, or if we can improve one of the motor symptoms, such as sleep disorders, so if someone can have a good night's sleep, or if we can improve constipation, or if we can improve, you know, someone's uh, stiffness or freezing, then I think that's a win for everyone. So, you know, it's just, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at those real kind of, um, you know, living life to the fullest well-being changes that can, that can really affect someone's life. Let me put you on the spot and ask for some stats here. How many Australians are suffering Parkinson's in your estimation at this point? So stage? conservatively, it's, uh, it's 80,000. Um, but because Parkinson's is not the kind of disease that you can test, you know, with a blood test or a scan or something like that, then um, most likely it's probably around 100,000. So for these 100,000 people, if your tests do prove something and that something is going on with this um, photomodulation, uh, how soon before we can each have our own buckets on our heads? Or our own... <laughs> so just to clarify, we are not using buckets. We're actually using TGA-approved equipment from of, overseas. Of course you are, but I, I just saw that um, some of the Tasmanians were... I do, I do believe that, yeah, it could be very soon that, um, that um, photobiomodulation is used, you know, and it's not going to replace... Uh, um, it's not going to replace medications. It's not going to replace some of the advanced therapies that people need. But it, you know, but it could go hand in hand with those. And if it can help improve someone's, you know, daily life, then why not? Well, it's got worldwide ramifications. Surely, if you guys are onto something here, this is going to be huge. We just hope that it turns out okay. I mean, not, not for us, but for people with Parkinson's all around the world, yeah. So if it can improve daily living, then that's the kind of thing that I'm looking for. And if you talk to any talk to any newborn, uh, any any parents of a newborn baby, and, and you know, sleep deprivation and, and, you know, sleep disorders and sleep disruption really does interrupt your life. You know, it interrupts, you know, what mood you're in the next day and how your body feels. If we can just, you know, improve people's sleep, then that is actually a huge win. It is a huge win. Olivia Nassaris, thank you so much indeed for talking to us today from Parkinson's South Australia. We truly appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Olivia Nassaris, thank you very much indeed for taking time to talk with us here on the AIDS stage and obviously we will be following the infrared photobiomodulation tests and research with great interest. 
Well, you are WPFM and you have been listening to The Age Stage, our weekly look at matters of interest to older Australians made possible by Aftercare Australasia and also Australian Unity. We would like to thank our guests who participated in the program this week. Warren Haynes, of course, from Aftercare Australasia and from Parkinson, South Australia, their CEO, Olivia Nassaris. I'm Brendan Telfer and we will be back in seven days' time with a new edition of The Age Stage. Have a great week and certainly hope that you can join us there.